the actions of one woman are going to reflect on other women, whereas men might be thought of kind of more as individuals. And, you know, if this guy makes a mistake, that doesn't mean that this other guy is also going to make a mistake. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifontaire. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Heather Sarsons is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and a research fellow at the NBER. She has research interests in labor, personal, and behavioral economics. In particular, she studies how a person's gender influences the way we interpret information about their ability and their contribution to teamwork, and how wage-setting institutions affect inequality in the labor market. Also, I should mention that Heather is Canadian. For some reasons, it's important. We talked about how women are evaluated differently in the medical profession and how it affects their careers. Hi, Heather. Hi. How is it going? Um, things are going pretty well. Okay. Uh, how are things there? Yeah, it's good. Uh, in Canada, Canada is missing you. <laughs> things are always good in Canada. Yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your research with me. I wanted to first place your research in the broader literature on gender inequality. We know that since the 90s and 2000s, discrimination was not really considered by economists as a main driver of gender inequality anymore. And there was like, you know, a greater attention laid on factors such as the fact that men and women do not work in the same kind of occupations or that uh, women, because they still contribute to the majority of household activities, tend to be overrepresented among part-time workers. And so the attention was really put on these type of explanations. And you are part of this line of research that has a renewed interest in how our biases can lead to potentially discriminatory behaviors. Can you tell us more about this approach? Yeah, so yeah, exactly what you said. Um, I think people had been finding over time kind of a smaller unexplained wage gap. So once you condition on the industry someone's in, the position they're in within a job and so on, uh, the wage gap shrinks pretty substantially. Um, and so kind of one uh, interest that I had was understanding when we think about the position that someone's in at a given point in time, that's kind of conditional on, you know, the set of skills they've been able to develop, how they've been evaluated before that, whether they've been promoted and so on. Um, and so in this project and in others, I was thinking about, well, are there, is there still kind of room for discrimination and bias to affect whether women are given second chances when they make mistakes, can they develop the same skills that men are able to develop? Do they have the same kind of number of chances to do that? Are there biases that go into promotion decisions that put women kind of at lower levels um, of the job ladder relative to men? So that that might explain kind of why you see women in these kind of maybe lower levels of the job ladder within a, an occupation or with different skill sets and so on. 
And you study a very specific setting because you look at doctors, so physicians who make referrals and surgeons, and you're going to look at men and women. Can you tell us about the aspects of your setting that are important when we want to study the importance of gender in interpreting signals about talents? And what are the key elements of your setting that makes it so interesting? Yeah, so I think one big difficulty in studying these types of questions is being able to track um, what people think about others. So if we want to understand how does an employer evaluate his or her employees, we need to know what he thinks about their performance at given points in time. And so in kind of typical employment settings, you see things like promotion decisions, um, passing out bonuses and that kind of thing only after an employer has seen a lot of signals from an employee. So after the employee has done a lot of work. And so it's very difficult to say whether, for example, if, if I make a mistake on the job, how does that affect how the employer thinks about me? Because by the time that I see in the data, the promotion decision, I've also maybe kind of had a bunch of chances where I've done very well at the job. Um, and so it's very difficult to be able to kind of track how people are reacting to these um, kind of good and bad um, events over time. And so the nice thing about the, the setting that I look at, which is um, surgical referrals from physicians to surgeons, uh, is that these are very high frequency. Uh, and so you can see how these uh, referral decisions change before and after different types of patient outcomes. So if, I, if I'm a physician, I refer my patient to you, I can see in the data, what is the outcome of that surgery? Does the patient do well? Does the patient not do well? And then I can see right after, how does my referral choice change after that surgery? And so you can track these decisions over time. And as long as we believe that these referral decisions somewhat track how a physician thinks about a surgeon's ability, um, then we can kind of track how the physician's beliefs about surgeon ability change over time. And what do you have exactly in your data sources that you use to identify these aspects? Uh, so I'm working with uh, Medicare data. So this is um, a large uh, government insurance scheme in the U.S. And this data set has uh, all referral decisions regarding Medicare, patients who are on uh, Medicare insurance. Um, so you can see the referral decisions of physicians whom they refer patients to. There's a lot of very rich data on the patients, which is important so that you can control for things like patient risk um, and patient demographics. And then you also see kind of the set of surgeons available in a physician's region so that I know what, who are the people that a physician has available to refer to so that you can uh, kind of condition on things like outside options and that kind of thing as well. When you talk about a bad or good event that could affect how people are perceived after that uh, and that signals something about the ability of a surgeon, what are you actually talking about? Yeah, so the bad events that I look at are mostly patient deaths that occur shortly after a surgery. Uh, and then I also look at unexpected rehospitalizations, so cases where a patient is rehospitalized. Um, for issues related to the initial surgery, but that's not just kind of a regular follow-up. Um, and then for the good events, I look at the other extreme where I take very kind of risky patients and procedures. So cases where there's a pretty high chance of something going wrong. And I call it a good event if the patient is fine after, is not rehospitalized, kind of goes on with their life. 
So you are tracking what happens to somehow the reputation of these surgeons, men or women, in terms of physician referrals after a good or a bad event. What is the key pattern that you observe in your data when you follow up what's happening after these events? So after a bad event, you see that kind of as you would expect, physicians are less likely to refer to the surgeon who performed the surgery. Um, but the change in referrals is much greater if the performing surgeon, the, the surgeon who performed the surgery is a woman than if it's a man. So women see um, kind of, I think about a 30 to 40% drop in referrals from that physician who referred that, that initial patient whereas men see a much smaller drop of about 5% in referrals. Uh, and then after a good event, you see the opposite, where both men and women receive more referrals from that physician in the future, so the physician's more likely to stick with them and send them more patients. Um, but there you see men get a little bit more of a, a boost afterward. Um, so it's kind of this asymmetric reaction on the part of the physician. La minute technique. In this podcast, researchers take one minute to try to explain one technical aspect of their research. I wanted to ask you to tell us a bit more about the procedure you use called the matching procedure. Uh, can you give us the intuition behind this method and why it's useful in your context? Yeah, so I chose to match surgeons, which meant that I would take male and female surgeons and look at all the observable characteristics that I can see about them as well as about their patient they're performing the procedure on um, and characteristics of their relationship with the physician. So things like, you know, how many patients has this physician referred to this surgeon in the past? Uh, what's the riskiness of the patient? What's the procedure being done? What's the surgeon's experience with that procedure? A whole host of things. And I basically try to match a female surgeon and a male uh, surgeon who have the same characteristics, the same observable characteristics. And the reason I do this instead of just controlling for these types of things is that um, it provides a bit more flexibility in terms of uh, the relationship between these variables um, and the outcome. So when we control for things, typically we are imposing a linear relationship. And for things like you know patient risk and experience and so on, I didn't have a good sense of whether this was actually a linear relationship. So you could go through and run thousands of regressions where you allow for different types of relationships between these kinds of variables, or you can match where that is just kind of left open. Um, but it comes at a couple of costs. So first, male and female surgeons are, differ on a lot of observable characteristics, and there are far fewer female surgeons than male surgeons. So I end up with a, a much smaller sample. Um, and it could be the case that it means the results are kind of not applicable to all female surgeons. So you might think that in order to match a female surgeon to a male surgeon, I'm only looking at female surgeons who have a very specific set of qualities, and then the other female surgeons who might be more representative are not matched in the end. Um, so I do a few different things to try to test whether this is true and see kind of how much can I extrapolate from these results to the broader sample and so on. So another interesting result that you talk about is the second asymmetry that you observe, like how physicians treat the whole group of men or women surgeons uh, in terms of referrals after an event. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so there you see um, this kind of interesting, well, interesting and sad phenomenon where after a physician has experiences a patient death under the care of a female surgeon, 
that physician becomes much less likely to refer to other female surgeons in the future who are in that same specialty. Um, so for example, if I refer a patient for, um, let's say, some kind of cardiac surgery, uh, the patient dies, and that performing surgeon is a woman, I'm less likely to refer to other female cardiac surgeons in the future. And that's not something I see when the uh, performing surgeon is a man. So there you don't really see any spillovers to other men. Uh, and I take that as evidence that suggests that physicians are kind of thinking about women as a group, and the actions of one woman are going to reflect on other women, whereas men might be thought of kind of more as individuals. And, you know, if this guy makes a mistake, that doesn't mean that this other guy is also going to make a mistake. talk about some factors that might mitigate these behaviors on the side of physicians, right? Yeah, so I find I look at a couple of different variables that you might think would kind of correlate with the size of the response. Um, so things like the physician being female, for example, don't play a role. You see this behavior from both male and female physicians. Uh, the two variables that seem to matter the most are a physician's experience with a surgeon. So it's very much kind of a learning story where if I've been referring to someone for a very long time, I've got a lot of signals from them. I'm pretty certain in my beliefs about how good they are. I don't much react to these good or bad events. I'm still going to keep referring to that person. It's really this behavior is kind of concentrated among new physician surgeon relationships. So it's when I'm just starting to refer to someone and kind of forming beliefs about how good they are and so on. That's when I'm going to react the most. Uh, and then you also see uh, that a physician's experience uh, referring to other women plays a role. So physicians who are kind of more likely than the average physician in their area to refer to women, they react the least to these patient deaths and react more positively to the good events under the care of female surgeons. So this kind of relates back to that um, thing we were talking about with how uh, physicians might treat women as a group rather than individuals. Um, it does seem to be that if I've had a lot of good experiences with other women, that's going to influence how much I react to this other woman. And in the last part of your paper, you try to see how these empirical results that you have can be rationalized in one of the most important conceptual framework that we use in economics to think about information, which is the Bayesian framework, the fact that individuals update uh, based on the information that they receive. What are the important assumptions to add in this model to make sense of the results that you have? Yeah, so I think the most intuitive explanation that would rationalize the results with uh, a model of Bayesian updating is that physicians would have to think that women are on average better surgeons than men. Um, so kind of the intuition here is that I already think women are very good. And so if I get a good signal from a woman that doesn't move my beliefs much, I already thought they were very good, so I'm not going to change my referral behavior very much. Whereas if I get a bad uh, signal from a woman, then I update a lot. And so I'm going to lower my referrals to her by quite a lot. Whereas for the guy, I you know, thought he was kind of mad before. And so I'm not going to change my referral behavior much if I get a bad signal from him. Whereas if I get a good signal, I update much more and I'm going to increase my referrals to him. 
So that would explain that asymmetry at the individual level. Um, there are a couple of pieces of the data that I think suggest that's not true. So one is that uh, women are under-referred to relative to their representation in the surgical population. Uh, and even adjusting for the fact that women tend to work fewer hours, take on fewer patients, and so on, you still see that women uh, get fewer referrals than their male counterparts. And so you'd think that, you know, if I, if I think women are the best, then I'm going to refer more to them, or at least refer kind of my most difficult cases or something like that to them. And you also see that physicians are less likely to refer difficult cases to women relative to men. Um, the second is that you do see that physicians who have a lot of experience referring to women react the least to these bad events and the most to the good events. So if you think that the kind of volume of referrals I'm sending to women correlates somewhat with my beliefs about women, so I, I wouldn't refer to a lot of women unless I thought they were pretty good, then these are kind of exactly the physicians you would think would react weakly to a good event and strongly to a bad event because they think women are very good. If they get a bad signal, they should lower their referrals a lot. Um, and in fact, we see the opposite in the data. So instead, I kind of try to think about a model where rather than discrimination coming through kind of bias and priors, it's coming through bias and how people are updating on these signals or interpreting this information. I wanted to talk about the policy implications of your results in terms of this bias in updating. We know that performance review and peer assessment are increasingly important in the workplace. What do you think are the key takeaways that we should take from your research to think about promotion of women, especially in a male-dominated environment? Yeah, this is a tricky question. and People always ask me this, and I have never had a good answer. Um, so I, I think there could be more research done on this to see whether more objective forms of evaluation would help with this. So with these referral decisions, there's no kind of like objective going through and evaluating how everything went, as far as I know. Um, and so it, it's kind of like however you interpret this event is how your beliefs change and that's going to affect your future referrals. It's possible that having more objective systems for review would help to close this gap. It's possible that kind of awareness of these kinds of biases could also help to close the gap. I, I think there would kind of have to be more research done to see what's an effective policy. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you if you had a particular recommendation for our listeners of book, a movie or podcast that inspired you. I have uh, two book recommendations that relate to inequality, especially uh, within the U.S. Sorry, I'm becoming U.S. biased. Moving here, I kind of knew about inequality in education. So a lot of public school systems are underfunded. There's a lot of segregation into public and private schools and so on. But there's kind of this puzzle also that Students who perform very well, who are from lower income backgrounds, um, who perform very well in high school or in elementary school, when they get to kind of these elite institutions, you would expect that they would continue to perform very well because they've had to overcome much more and have had, you know, not as much support and so on. Um, and that doesn't seem to always be the case. And so there's two nice books. The first one is called Privilege by Seamus Khan, and the second is called The Privileged Poor by Anthony Jack. And in these books, they're talking about how these more elite universities uh, are set up in a way that's not conducive to helping um, students from lower income backgrounds, um, students of color succeed. Um, he goes through kind of some of his policy recommendations on what could be done to help 
make it a more equal playing field and so on. Thank you so much, Heather, for your time. Thanks for having me. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clémentine Vanefonter in Toronto. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.